during the pandemic, we're all at home, right? So we're at home during the pandemic and you'll have, it doesn't have to even be a rainy day, it could be a sunny day thinking, you know, what, what do I want to watch tonight? And, and in my case, my students always tease me that I show them a lot of depressing movies. So during the, the pandemic, when I'm thinking to watch something just for my own sake, just, you know, what, what will I watch tonight? I sort of look over the, the titles, think about various films, and I think, my goodness, I have a lot of depressing movies. <laughs> and, you know, what, 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 what should I watch this evening? And I remember thinking, like, this is a film that really is so important, and I'm so glad I saw it. But it, to your anecdote, Marie, it's really like on that sort of night, you know, where you just want to watch something and just have some, you know, some entertainment. It's not the first thing to pull off the shelf at that point, or, or, or if you're looking through your streaming options, the first thing to go for. And that's a sort of fascinating consideration. Though. There are some films that I really admire, like this one. But I wouldn't necessarily want to see again, or, or I'd have to almost have like a reason to see again, like, you know, the show we're doing or something. But quite honestly, and I don't mind sharing this, it's just, you know, on, on any given night, hey, what are you in the mood for watching tonight? Well, let me watch a really long and really depressing movie. I'm somebody who does that routinely, but even by my standards, it's like, that's sort of pushing it like, you know, do I want to go through that again here? So some films I would almost rather savor in retrospect that way. Like I really admired it and I remember it well, but you know, Quite honestly, sitting down in the evening, is it the first thing I reach for? Probably not. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about 12 Years a Slave and Moonlight, starting with 12 Years a Slave. And Mike, I'm sure you have some way you want to set this up, but I just want to start by saying, of course, I've known about this movie for years and I just was dreading watching it and I could never really make myself watch it. So I had to force myself to, and it was every bit as hard to watch as I thought it would be almost excruciatingly hard to watch. So Mike, take it away from there, set the stage for 12 Years a Slave for us. Well, you know, I saw this film first run when it came out in 2013, and it is a difficult film. And I've used it in the classroom for a course I teach about, you know, Blacks in film. In, in fact, when watching it with a group, even, I always have to sort of like, you know, caution or brace or warn is a strong word, but just simply you're in for a tough story. But it is a tough story. There's no way around that. We're talking about the history of race relations in this country. So let me segue from that to the actual history involved here, which, which is difficult subject matter. No way around it. Twelve Years a Slave is based on a, a slave memoir, as it would have been called, uh, from 1853 by a man named Solomon Northrup. This was actually a, a popular literary genre, if I can put it that way, in the mid-19th century in particular. So during slavery and the years just after it, uh, later in the, in the 19th century, namely, in some cases, the slaves or former slaves would be writing their own stories. As often, it was as told to. And there's a quick asterisk or cautionary note here. This is a kind of warning and not necessarily in a pejorative sense, but simply that if you have someone who is not lettered, someone who's illiterate, who's now freed, and wants to tell his or her story, when it's as told to, most often it would be told to a white abolitionist who would write it down. So I don't want to get sidetracked with that, just simply that this is like a, a literary genre or, or subgenre of sorts in terms of 19th century memoirs. And for the abolitionist movement, these were crucial documents, if you will, to really document what slavery was like as lived by somebody who was indeed a slave. And in this particular case, Solomon Northrup was a, actually in his case, not a slave. This is actually the crux of the story, making it even more difficult. He was freeborn. He had never been in slavery. Indeed, was living up in uh, you know, New York State, 
But what happened to him actually happened fairly often. He was kidnapped by two white men in Washington, D.C. in 1841. He's visiting and, and they see an opportunity to capture him and sell him into slavery. Now, we can very quickly, from our perspective, say, well, he's a free man. It's not right to somehow arrest him and imprison him and sell him into slavery and make money off him. Okay, it's one thing for us to say that's not right. It's legally wrong, on and on. But you know what? Back in that day, what could he do? What legal recourse would he have? By the time this whole process takes place, and it's very quick, he's a slave way down south. And so that's really the origin of him being put into slavery. And then, of course, as we talk about the film, working towards his freedom. In terms of that story itself, you then have that 1854 slave memoir by Solomon Northrup. In terms of artistic treatment of it in our own time, specifically, this is like getting into late 20th century, there had been an earlier film version of this very story in 1984 with Avery Brooks, actually, in a TV movie that was directed by none other than Gordon Parks. And I, I'd met Gordon Parks over the years, and he was so inspirational as a photographer and as a filmmaker and just as a, a cultural icon. This was one of his films in which he really wanted to deliberately visit or revisit that period in American history to show what the hardship was like. Now, the title of that TV film was Solomon Northrup's Odyssey. So I, I think it's important to mention that as in this isn't the first time out of the gate in terms of creative treatment of the story. But now we then move ahead to the film we're talking about, which comes out in 2013, which is a big budget film. It has a $22 million budget, which would have been, you know, worth considering as not a huge film budget, but, you know, not, not a small independent scrappy film either. This is a film with some money behind it. What's some of the money there? What's interesting is in getting it made, Brad Pitt, who also appears as an actor in the film, he also has a film production company, Plan B Entertainment. He helped to put money into it, and he helped to get the thing going, get the project going. As it got going, and, and I'll hand off to you in just a second here, but as it got going, where did it get going? Well, most of the shooting was done on Louisiana locations, which were very close to where Solomon Northrop's plantation had been. So it's not only in the right part of the country, but it's within miles of where this story transpired. And the historical accuracy is so impressive in this film, the plausibility of what you're watching. That's why it's so painful, so difficult. And the final observation I'll make in that respect before handing off is that uh, none other than the, uh, the, the historian Henry Louis Gates Jr. worked as an, a consultant on this film. So it comes down to detail, doesn't it, so often in filmmaking? Would her clothes have looked like that? Would the house have had that color paint? Would it, you know, it's detail. And when you're an historian or a filmmaker who's functioning in the same way, you want it to look right. You want it to feel right. And this film, yet another underscoring of how painful it is to watch is you really believe you're there. You want to really place the audience there. Oh, you are definitely really in it. And I will say in terms of Brad Pitt's character, you know, there's a little cynicism there watching him play, you know, a good guy in the midst of a whole lot of really tough acting jobs done by Paul Giamatti and Michael Fassbender. But he said about that, yeah, I mean, I sort of understand where people are coming from with that. But to be honest, attaching my name to the project meant it got more financing. So that was just like a background reality of the situation. But I thought he kind of stuck out in a really unrealistic way when the whole rest of the movie was just so vitally honest and in so many other ways, you know, prepare to be outraged when you watch it and be prepared for extended scenes of brutality, which I, some of which I had to like hide under a blanket until it was over. 
And it did make me wonder, Mike, and I'd really like your take on this. When you were watching it, did you say to yourself, it is unbelievable that this kind of thing is filmed for entertainment purposes? It, it felt like it went on so long. I know to underscore the point, but at the same time, you know, it is a movie that people are going to to be entertained. There seemed something almost obscene. Was that the point? Well, you're raising a fascinating consideration here in terms of how this came together. And I mentioned Brad Pitt's pivotal role, and he's not the only one. It's a consortium to raise that kind of money and so on. It's actually a consortium of both British and American financing and uh, talent, creative talent. Some of the actors are, are British, right? And some are you know, American, whether black or, or white or what have you. So it's a real mix in the acting pool. And also in terms of financing, it was a real mix to pull it all together. And I do have, much as I, I, I admire the sense of historical accuracy of being grounded in that Louisiana territory. I have a, a few reservations about the film, and Marie, you actually very incisively identified two reservations that I have there. Well, maybe more than two even, but, but, but uh, one of those reservations has to do with Brad Pitt. I admire him for like, you know, as functioning like an executive producer would, right? I put my name on the project, other people see my name, and they're more inclined to give us money. That's sort of what it comes down to. If he's going to be involved and he's actually in it as an actor. But you know what? In many of the roles, you feel like the actors have totally disappeared into character. It's kind of hard for Brad Pitt to do that when you're such a big movie star. And you're right. That was a major reservation I had. His performance is fine. I'm not quibbling with the, the caliber of the acting. But simply when he's in his scenes, I'm thinking, there's Brad Pitt. And that does sort of snap you out of, you know, being in Louisiana in the mid 19th century. For sure, that's a reservation. A second major reservation I had was, we need to be immersed in this. It's crucial to be. But you're right, Marie, that the film really kind of, it's so grinding in some ways. I'm wondering, you know, if I were to recommend that somehow they tighten it up a little bit or cut this scene or that one, I get nervous about making the recommendation because it's like, well, this is like a super serious subject and we need to be afraid. We need, when you say like cowering under the blanket, we need to somehow like really be struck by this and taken in by it. But this is a real, a, a difficult kind of vexing creative question. Once you have immersed an audience in that kind of setting, when is enough enough? And I think that's what you're getting at. And even though we need to really, we don't want some light entertainment, like here, you know, zippy 90 minutes and then we're out of there. No, you need to like really get in it and it should be uncomfortable. But what degree of discomfort and for how, how long? I can't treat that as a mathematical equation. I can't say, well, you need to take X number of minutes out or this scene or that one. But my general response was that twofold reservation of Brad Pitt really kind of standing out in a pejorative way. And then secondly, just thinking, okay, maybe, you know, just tighten up a little bit, like, like how much misery is going to be inflicted on the characters and in a sense on the audience. What do you think, Marie? Because it raises that like really uncomfortable subject of entertainment value. I mean, the film should not be ha-ha entertaining, but then what should it be? I mean, I mean, just how much unhappiness, how much discomfort should the audience be put through? What's your, let's follow up on this. What's your sense of that? Because I think it's a, a really vexing question. I can't answer to my satisfaction. Hopefully you'll answer it to my satisfaction. I don't know if I will, but I'll, I'll at least give it a shot. I felt, and I had felt for years, you know, I really should watch that movie, if only to bear witness to what happened. And I knew it was going to be very realistic. So that was what kind of made me try to wait for the right moment, you know, because it's, it's, it is very hard to watch. Um, and in terms of the um, characters played by Fassbender and Giamatti, they really let you hate them, which is a risk as an actor. You know, you don't want your, the people who follow your career to actually hate you all the time, but they really go for it. So 
you know, Brad Pitt's little small part there, it just seemed like gold star for me. That's what I felt sort of didn't fit. But, you know, we need to talk about the actors in this movie. I mean, Lupita Nyong'o, this is, I think, what put her on the map. This is an Oscar performance. She really commits. There's never a moment where you are not afraid for her and for the main character as they are trying to make their way through the situation over which they have no control. Yeah, she won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. So to bolster your point, I mean, it's really an impressive performance. And indeed, while we're talking about the Oscars, the film itself won the Academy Award for Best Picture. That should be mentioned at some point here. And also John Ridley won the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. So it got that kind of recognition. And it's a really well-acted film. And so I know I feel like right now I'm I'm taking Brad Pitt to task over and over again. But when you have such a well-acted film right down the line, yes, he's a good actor in it. But but even though it's a relatively brief role, the way in which he stands out there. Because every other actor that you've mentioned and others we could mention, for the most part, they really just become the character. And again, that sort of thorough immersion in it. In terms of that painful quality of watching what happens to these characters, let me quickly add a scholarly note to that. One of the most important scholars of of Black film is Donald Bobel. Um, I I use a a, a book by him in one of my courses. He is one of the two or three real experts on Blacks in film. And this is his assessment of the film we're talking about. Quote, the unflinching 12 Years a Slave rewrote movie history. All those past films with images of contented or happy-go-lucky slaves are shattered. That's the point that strikes me. Let me give that last sentence again. All those past films with images of contented or happy-go-lucky slaves are shattered. Not that every film about slavery was to that gone with the wind type extreme, but oftentimes there's a tendency to either like either underplay that or just have it as a, as a backdrop or somehow not dwell on it too much. You and I are talking about that sort of contentious creative question of, well, how much dwelling on it should one do? How much do you lean on it? How many minutes of running time? All those pragmatic concerns in putting a film together. But Bogle makes the crucial point that, you know, if earlier films either treated it too lightly, happy-go-lucky slaves, gone with the wind, you know, loving the massa, all that kind of stuff, you know, there have been more bracing, more honest films since then. But this is a film which is like just so determined to be honest, to really take us through it. And it's doubling back on what you and I were saying about, well, when is enough enough in that respect? Because Marie, you know, I watched the film first run and I remember sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, I I know what that period was like from a film like this, but it's tough. There there were no blankets in the theater where I was watching it, but I understand your response of wanting to crawl under the blanket at a certain point, which maybe is is the whole point, right? You should be made uncomfortable and, and perhaps to that degree, arguably. I will say it's a movie you watch once. I don't know that it's a movie that you return to for, you know, to see what you missed or, you know, to watch again. I I think it is a one-off, which I don't mean to criticize it in that way, just to to point it out that for entertainment value, for how you would want to spend a rainy afternoon, you know, you'd have to really think about whether this was something to return to over and over artistically. I'm so glad you said that because you perfectly (laughs) captured what I was thinking. During the pandemic, we're all at home, right? So we're at home during the pandemic and you'll have, it doesn't have to even be a rainy day. It could be a sunny day thinking, you know, what what do I want to watch tonight? And and in my case, my students always tease me that I show them a lot of depressing movies. So during the the pandemic, when I'm thinking to watch something just for my own sake, just, you know, what what will I watch tonight? I sort of look over the, the titles, think about various films, and I think, my goodness, I have a lot of depressing movies. <laughs> and, you know, what, 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 what should I watch this evening? And I remember thinking, like, this is a film that really is so important. 
and I'm so glad I saw it. But it, to your anecdote, Marie, it's really like on that sort of night, you know, where you just want to watch something and just have some, you know, some entertainment. It's not the first thing to pull off the shelf at that point, or, or, or if you're looking through your streaming options, the first thing to go for. And that's a sort of fascinating consideration. Though. There are some films that I really admire, like this one. But I wouldn't necessarily want to see again, or, or I'd have to almost have like a reason to see again, like, you know, the show we're doing or something. But quite honestly, and I don't mind sharing this, it's just, you know, on, on any given night, hey, what are you in the mood for watching tonight? Well, let me watch a really long and really depressing movie. I'm somebody who does that routinely, but even by my standards, it's like, that's sort of pushing it like, you know, do I want to go through that again here? So some films I would almost rather savor in retrospect that way. Like I really admired it and I remember it well, but, you know, Quite honestly, sitting down in the evening, is it the first thing I reach for? Probably not. I mean, so Maria, thank you for saying that. So the onus is on you here that you said it, and I just agreed with you. Well, you know how it is. You come across a movie that's already in progress on TV, and you know, you'll stop, oh, it's this movie. If you see, oh, it's 12 Years a Slave, you don't think, oh, let me get some popcorn and sit down. You think, oh, all of the things that it brought up for you. So bear witness by all means, but it's a tough movie to get through. Before we move on, let's say something about how well Steve McQueen, the director, did and how this kind of launched him. Yeah, again, my, one of my earlier points was, and it's worth dwelling on film financing, it's the movie business, the, the fact that the financing was both from British and American sources, Brad Pitt, and I won't say anything more that's negative about him at this point, because he deserves credit for pulling it together. But anyway, you have those British and American financing forces and creatively in terms of not just the actors, but the director. Uh, McQueen, you know, is a Brit and became known in this country for films like Hunger and, and Shame and, you know, a really top line director. And one thing I find interesting here is just simply that, you know, talent freely travels across the Atlantic. And I think this film is a good example of how, considering how many Brits are involved behind the camera and in front of it, it's not distracting. And by that, I mean, you don't find yourself thinking somebody will have the wrong accent or anything like that. It's just everyone gets into character and, and, Watching the film, I never, I mean, I knew who the director was and I know that he's a Brit, but so what? You know, I'm, I'm watching a well-made film. I never felt like somehow it was an outside, and maybe where it's an advantage. And I've talked about this before with other British directors, like when John Schlesinger made Midnight Cowboy in 1969, a British director making a grungy American story in Times Square. And Schlesinger in interviews used to talk about this, that, well, you know what? There are advantages sometimes to being an outsider. You come in from another culture, you come to the United States and you're wide-eyed, you're open, right? To like, oh my goodness, let me learn about this. Or why do they do that? Why did she say it that way? No, I'm getting at all those levels at which you wonder about this, the society that you're visiting. And so there are advantages to that. And I'm conjecturing here that, I mean, any talented director could have brought this to the screen, but the fact that here's someone who's like, you know, he's a Brit, he's come over, he's making this story. He's like wide-eyed and fascinated and just totally committed to it. And I don't think that gives him an advantage inherently over what an American would do. But I'm just saying I think that's something that can play to advantage. You know, the fact that he's coming in and learning this material and seeing it all fresh. I mean, not that he wouldn't be aware of the history of slavery in England as, as well, but the fact that he's here. How do you feel about that, Marie? Because I think there's a kind of cross-cultural sort of transatlantic quality to a film like this that fortunately watching the film, as I've said, you don't you don't think about it, you're not aware of it. It's more like in discussions like ours, where that whole subject comes up, of the fact that it's a British man directing this very American uh, story about slavery. That slight level of remove makes it seem more authentic somehow. That, that would be my take on that. 
but we need to pivot over to Moonlight. And in a previous show, we talked about with Boys in the Hood being introduced to actors for the first time that then, you know, then they just sort of explode on the scene. You see them in everything, but, you know, your first experience of them. And for Moonlight, of course, it's Mahershala Ali, who doesn't really have that much screen time, but is absolutely incandescent, unforgettable in this movie, which is all about living in fear of discovery. What do you think, Mike? How do we uh, explain the background story for Moonlight? So the film we were talking about, 12 Years a Slave, comes out in 2013. This movie, Moonlight, comes out in 2016. So we're talking about that same time period, basically. The essential thematic material here involves what's been described as the intersection of hypermasculinity and homosexuality. So it's, it's really, you know, difficult subject matter in that respect. And the writer-director is Barry Jenkins. He himself has described the film as being, quote, about rampant homophobia in the Black community, close quote. So he knows he's hitting an issue that is really sensitive, and the film does an extremely good job of, of conveying that material. In terms of how the, the film itself came together, the playwright Terrell Alvin McCraney, whose work I've seen at Center Stage and elsewhere, local theaters have, have done his work, he had an unproduced play, and that unproduced play in Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue, that unproduced play was the basis for Barry Jenkins' screenplay. And Jenkins, of course, then would direct his own screenplay. That friendship between Jenkins and, and McCraney is, is fascinating in this respect. They actually grew up in the same neighborhood in Miami. They didn't know each other at that time. It's really sort of uncanny that they, they were in the same environment, if you will, but didn't know each other. And it was only years later they met. And what a great meeting, if you will, because there's so much in sync. There's so much, um, you know, they understand the material on a very personal level in terms of their own you know, private lives and so on. And so then when the film gets made, it's for a $4 million budget, which, again, in filmmaking terms, by Hollywood standards, that's a tiny budget. By independent filmmaking standards, that's a big budget. So the film is somewhere in a category or level, if you will, that's not quite big budget filmmaking, but not quite, you know, scramble and scrape and make it for, you know, a few hundred thousand or a million or something. No, they've got some money to work with. And I'll hand it back to you with this observation that the film they make, which is set in the Liberty City area, the film that they make is a really curious fusion, if you will. I, I think of it as a fusion between two genres or two types of filmmaking. One would be the urban action film, okay, which oftentimes doesn't have a lot of quote unquote artistic merit, the urban action film. And uh, the second category, if you will, is the art film. So here's a fusion of urban action and art film. And it works. It works extremely well. But it's extremely unusual in that respect. The one category, urban action, typically does not win Academy Awards. The other category, art film, does. Here's a film that has both of those melded together. And it will go on, of course, to win significant awards, which we'll talk about presently. Now, when I saw it in the theaters when it came out, it struck me as being very daring. And I'm always impressed if I see a movie that I feel like I have never seen before. Because you know how many times they will retread stories or stereotypes or whatever. This was just so different. And what I appreciated about it was the steady gaze that it kept on its subject. That what made it tough to watch was it starts off by following a, a young man who, you know, his mother is a drug addict. He's struggling with trying to figure out who he is and what his sexuality is. He's persecuted. And, you know, even on a good day, it's never a good day because he, he's in a terrible situation to start with. 
the fact that it is starting out with a, with a child is what makes it, I think, so much harder to, to stick with it as characters because you don't ever want anything to happen to any person, period, but certainly not focusing on a child. And I thought that aspect of it was very daring because it felt true and terrible at the same time. Yeah, those are some of the most impressive scenes in the film because our protagonist, Chiron, is is 11 as the story's beginning. You're seeing him really young. And it, because this is all a story about formation, how you become what you become, who you are, you know, that kind of personal identity crisis in, in, in a case like this, the stages of development, if you will. So one of the most notable aspects of the film is that it's told in three chapters. And there are three different actors playing our protagonist. Initially, as I mentioned, at the age of 11, and then at the age of 17, and then at the age of 25. And the director of the film was adamant that they be filmed separately, almost like making three separate movies and then edit it together. And I mentioned that because he did not, with the way he shot it, one episode, the next, the third, he did not want the actors to meet each other while the film was being made. So in other words, if you're the kid playing the kid, He did not want that child actor to meet what the character would become by the mid-20s. You know what I mean? He didn't want to have that as an undue influence. Oh, that's what I'll look like. That's how I'll talk. That's what I'll be. No, he didn't want them to have that awareness. And watching the film, it's totally plausible. It's always convincing watching it that, yeah, you know, this kid is growing up and there'll be these jumps as you go then to the next age. And it works. You know, it's a very kind of risky strategy, because imagine if it hadn't. But like in terms of the physical casting, what if the audience thought, gee, this this actor doesn't look much like the other one? They are, or, or somehow it didn't seem to, to flow in terms of character development. But it does. And my goodness, how, how challenging that would be, because it's not the way most movies are made, to, to state the obvious. One of the things I think makes this a pleasure to watch is that even in the three chapters where, you know, it details the struggles and gives you a front row seat. There's also moments of real poignancy, of grace, where there is a breakthrough, there is an understanding, there is a friendship, there is a connection, which gives you hope, especially, you know, pulling the story all the way through to the end. Mike, I want to make sure we we discuss the awards it won and why, because this, this was a big deal in terms of Hollywood. Yeah, this film had eight Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, and it won for that. And that was so that was the year when there was the famous gaffe on air where Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, you know, mistakenly were, were announcing La La Land as the big winner. And no, no, wait a minute. It's not it's, it's Moonlight. And that, that's one of the all time great gaffes, breaks the word, one of the all time uh, notable gaffes on, on the Oscars. But Moonlight indeed did win. Um, it also won Best Supporting Actor for Ali and also won for Best Adapted Screenplay. So, Marie, this is a film that, you know, did not have a huge box office, but this is the story of most recent Academy Awards, isn't it? So often in recent years, the Best Picture winner is not necessarily a big winner at the box office. But again, this is where the film, as you mentioned, the melding of urban action and art film and all the violence associated with an urban action picture. But then that more uh, meditative, more, more peaceful quality that sometimes an art film will have. And so, Marie, this is this was your point that you'll have scenes that, that give you the kind of loud, violent activity you expect in this setting, but then moments of contemplation, really meditative and beautifully poetic scenes and the way it's shot, just really, really gorgeous to watch in times. And the film has all those elements and they all somehow hold together in a way. So not surprising it would win so many awards, but in some ways it, it really is a marker, an indicator of how Hollywood, how specifically the Academy Awards increasingly have recognized 
films like 12 Years a Slave and Moonlight. That these are pictures that are not only winning Oscars, but the top prizes, you know, for, for best film and so on. That is really encouraging. I wish they, these films had more box office, if you will, but it is difficult subject matter for, you know, somebody just looking for a night out of entertainment and popcorn. And I, as I look at you, Marie, I'm looking at the popcorn behind you as well. You know, I love that word poetic because I think that is a, a really good way to describe this movie. And when you think about going up against La La Land, that's the kind of movie that the Academy likes to reward because it was a valentine to the movies themselves. So the fact that it edged out that movie, I think is, is really significant. I just want to mention quickly before we run out of time that I thought that that scene in the diner was everything. You know, we've seen lots of, you know, scenes in the diner in other movies, but I just thought for me, that was the most powerful part of the whole movie. But before we do run out of time, what did you think of that last shot, Mike? Was that the 400 blows or what? Well, very quickly, the shot in the diner where our protagonist meets an old friend after many years' absence, that is a great scene. Just the way it's, the way it's shot, technically, the acting, it hits. It's really a, a classic scene. At the very end of the film, without spoiling it for anyone who hasn't seen it, there is a shot that is evocative of Francois Truffaut's The 400 Blows. Because, you know, as, as a young person, you're heading into what can be an uncertain future. And there's a certain open-ended quality, as life would be at that point. You don't know what's ahead for you. So I'm assuming the director would have been keenly aware of the Truffaut film. Whether aware of it or not, it has a similar effect. You're absolutely right. That, that's the 400 blows right there. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other episodes at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Pandora and Spotify. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.